Let's pray as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I love maps. I remember being in fourth grade and, and some sort of exercise in school asking, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I enthusiastically told my class that I want to be a choreographer when I grow up. And then they laughed sort of like you're laughing right now. And I realized that a choreographer creates dances and a cartographer creates maps. So when anybody asked that question after that, I would just say I want to make maps because that was easier and I knew I couldn't goof that up too bad. At that time, I was living on the north side of Chicago and I had a little city map that I would study. And when I felt like I had a few more streets, I would have my parents drive me either west to east or north to south and quiz me on, the, on the, which street came next. When I was older and, and had my own license and uh, was able to drive in more places, whenever I would cross a state line, I would get one of those nice trifold laminated maps uh, that I could put in the front door as a souvenir, but also to study so that I knew where to go. I've lamented the technological move to GPS and turn-by-turn directions because it eliminates my need for a map. It gives me no chance of getting lost, which I enjoy sometimes. I still try and go pretty much anywhere that we try and go as a family without any assistance from my phone. Uh, I think it's the map lover in me. I love to know where I am and where I'm headed and the various ways to get there. And I love that visual representation in front of me. That's what maps are for. They provide detailed, practical information about how to get from one point to another. But here's something that I'm realizing. On a grander scale, our maps today are political and economic statements, documents. They serve to highlight areas of power in our world. The biggest and best cities and centers of power get larger fonts on our map, don't they? The businesses and institutions that will pop up on your, on your Google Maps are often there, not necessarily because they're the best, but because they paid for the advertising space to get there. I even recall the map in my social studies class in high school, maybe you had this too, where North America was right smack dab in the center and Asia was on both the left and the right side because it was cut in half. That's a statement, isn't it? How we view things. These are statements that our maps make because every map portrays what the cartographer thinks matters most to whoever's reading it. On our maps today, only the most detailed ones, only the maps that where you, where you zoom in as far as you can would have a place like Bethlehem, especially if they never received that visitor over 2,000 years ago. Bethlehem would not be on most of our maps. I think it's fair to say that if Mary were here walking on 21st century soil, she probably wouldn't have settled in a place like Hinsdale. It wasn't really her place. My guess is that if we were to bring her into our context somehow, she would be from some town downstate that many of us have heard of, but none of us have ever been to. That's my guess of where she would be from. And let me be frank and say something about where we are on the map. We show up on the map. The towns we live in show up on the map. Hinsdale and the surrounding areas here they are areas of great influence and power and commerce, beautiful homes and shopping districts and incredible social services and blue ribbon schools and incredible infrastructure and, 
and perfect roads. Okay, the roads are not really good here, but everything else is like really perfect, right? We live in an influential and powerful place. Maybe you're uncomfortable with that. Maybe you're uncomfortable with the idea of that you are living in an influential and powerful place. But it's true. Look at the cars in the parking lot here. Look at, just think of the amount of education in this small gathering here, the, the years of education and expertise and the spheres of influence that you have in the marketplace and in the workplace and in your neighborhoods and in your homes. We are an influential people. So here's my question. Influential in what way? Influential in what way? We need to ask this because our texts, both of them from Luke and from Revelation, they tell us that Jesus, at least by my reading, seems to show up in places not of power and influence, but in places of weakness and little influence. What does that mean for us as people of power and influence? That leads me to our Revelation text, the church of Philadelphia and what is modern-day Western Turkey. It was a place that was defined in Scripture, you'll see it here, by their weakness. And Jesus has a word for this little church community in Revelation 3. I want to walk you through it. Starting in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia... Can we get the text up there, Cole? Got it? Thank you. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And yet you've kept my word and you've not denied my name. Philadelphia today is not known as Philadelphia. The name of the town is Alashahir. It's a small, sleepy town that lies in the eastern edge of a broad valley that runs from the Ushir Mountains down to the Aegean Sea. Now, as you stand in the center of this little town, a couple of us in this room have been in this little town, you realize as you're standing there that you're in a valley, a juncture of ancient trade routes leading to the provinces of Turkey. And since the time of the Romans, this town was seen as a gateway from west to east. And though it's situated in a fertile valley and has a lot of vital resources for the sake of commerce that are very beneficial, it was a place that was constantly vulnerable as an unfortified town on a, on a crossroad, invading armies and simple bandits were a constant threat for the people that were there. But if it wasn't the armies or the bandits, it was the regular earthquakes or the constant threat of volcanic eruption that left Philadelphia a very vulnerable place. It's worth noting that of the seven churches that are written to in the book of Revelation, only two of them can be considered positive letters. And this one is the most so. Jesus says to the small church, your works have not gone unnoticed. You're small and you're weak and you don't have a lot of influence, but because you've stayed faithful to me and you've not denied me, your future is an open door into my kingdom. For a church in a city that was seen as a gateway between east and west, that gateway often meant that they were vulnerable and they were unstable. But Jesus sees an eternally open door for this church, one that nothing can shut. Verse 9 is a little tricky. <clears throat> I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but are lying. I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. 
What does this mean? These, uh, these Christian believers had been kicked out of the Jewish synagogue for failing to follow various stipulations of Jewish law. They were marginalized and ostracized, and they were often hanging on by a thread and, and being uh, antagonized by their Jewish neighbors. So John's promise might read something like, the Jews of Philadelphia are going to be humiliated for their treatment of Christians. But we shouldn't actually read it this way. Actually, we should read it more optimistically, that, that even though these Christians have been ostracized, God is going to use them in some way to help these Jews who have hurt them. Perhaps part of that open door is for them to minister to these Jews in their midst and bring them back to God. And here's the promise. Because you've kept my word of patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Throughout this Advent season, we've been focused on two comings. The first coming of Christ over 2,000 years ago in the stable in the manger in Bethlehem. And then the coming of Christ again that we look forward to. Well, here's that promise of the Christ to come. The Christians in Philadelphia have been faithful to Jesus in the midst of great pressures and great instability. And because of this, Christ promises that for them, his second coming is going to be one of joy. That they're not going to have to endure the trials of judgment in the same way as so many others. All they need to do is hold fast to this faith because surely he is coming back. And then look at the closing verses. If you conquer, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You will never go out of it. I will write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Let anyone who has ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. For a city and a church that was literally and figuratively living on a fault line, constantly wondering what's going to happen next. The promise here is one of permanence. The church will be stable and immovable, a pillar of the new Jerusalem. They will even be given a permanent name. This is interesting because Philadelphia had to adopt many names over their history, even their recent history when this was written, Neo-Caesarea and Flavia and Vespasia. It all depended on who conquered them and which king wanted to give a city to which other king. But now they're going to receive a new name, one that comes from God and will never be overtaken. So that's Philadelphia. It's a church in a town that is not going to show up on many maps, but it's eternally important to God. I want to go back to maps. Maps have not always been what we know of them today. Medieval cartographers had a very different set of priorities. This is one of those. It's called the Mappa Mundi, and it resides in the British Library in London. We don't know who the artist is of this piece. It's not very big. It's only about that big. Um, we don't know who the artist is, uh, but we know it's a Psalter map of the world that was made in 1250. Uh, and my guess is that as you look at this as modern viewers, this looks embarrassingly primitive, right? I mean, how could this possibly be a world map that anyone would use? What mattered most, clearly, is not the actual borders of any country or continent or body of water, for that, moment, for that matter, but the, the focus was to present to 
who was looking at this map, that the modern world at the time, they were trying to present it through a biblical lens. The map is oriented with what we would call east on the top, actually. Uh, and, and then you can see in the center is a convergence of Europe and Asia and Africa. And then Jesus, of course, presides over it all on top, floats over it all. With his right hand, he offers a gesture of Trinitarian blessing. In his left hand, he's holding, what, another little globe. He's holding the world in his hands. Cities like Rome and Athens, they're on this map, but they're really afterthoughts. They're on the margins, and the fonts are pretty small. The biggest scripts and the most prominent spaces are reserved for biblical geography. If you look at the center of the map, it might be a little hard to see, but you see Jerusalem there. Just to the right of it is Bethlehem. That's much bigger than Bethlehem deserves to be if you're trying to do any sort of map of scale. It's a small town that, short of its famous visitor, deserves no place on any world map. In the middle, the heart of the map is Jerusalem. Because the map of Mundi was meant to assist those who saw their lives as a pilgrimage toward the heavenly Jerusalem. You can see Jerusalem is no simple city here. It's elevated. There's a circle around it, and it's almost floating, a sign and symbol of the heavenly Jerusalem that Christ's followers ought to hang on to. On the map of Mundi, all roads lead to the heavenly Jerusalem. And for all its geographical naivete, I think it's kind of a cool map. And I think it's instructive for me, and it helps me get my bearings on my own journey of faith. So think of this map, and then think of modern maps we have today. And let me bring it together by asking a question. What's the geography of your heart? If you were to roll out your heart in map form, what would it look like? What would be featured on that map? How would it be oriented? What would be in the center of that map? I like to think that if the Church of Philadelphia had created a world map, it would look a lot more like the map of Mundi than our modern Google Maps today of Western Turkey. Their center was the heavenly hope of the new Jerusalem instituted by the cosmic Christ. Because when you yourself have little power, God's encouragement is to fix your eyes on the open door before you in the hope of the Christ to come. The church at Philadelphia understood this. Mary, the mother of Jesus, understood this. And we have an opportunity to understand this in profound ways in this Advent season. I say that because this is a season in which we find hope in weakness. It's the season where we celebrate God's geography. The God who regularly chooses places and people that have little power of their own but are faithful and are hopeful. Jesus could have come to any woman of power or influence, but he didn't. He could have bypassed coming as a child altogether and just come as a mighty warrior king, but he did not. He could have rightly come to anywhere other than Bethlehem, Rome, or Athens, or Jerusalem, but he didn't. He chose instead to come to a place and to a people with little influence and little power. It's as if God's map is the exact opposite of our maps. It's upside down. It's not to scale. It highlights places that we would never highlight, and it's centered on things that we cannot see, the heavenly reward. One more map story. The British economist E.F. Schumacher visited Moscow during the years of the Soviet Union. 
and he was given a tourist map that showed the city, but showed the major buildings and, and principal monuments displayed by small drawings. You've seen some of those tourist maps before. He found himself in front of a large church, and he was unsure of where he was and was trying to get back to his hotel, so he searched among the various images on his map to try and find the church, but he couldn't find a church that resembled the one he was looking at. So he eventually found an English speaker on the street, and the English speaker was passing by and could understand his confusion. He, said, he pointed out to Schumacher that even though it's a beautiful church, it's an impressive building, it was not represented on the map. Well, why not? Schumacher asked. And the Muscovite answered him, it's a living church. It's still a place of worship. People still worship here. Soviet maps only show dead churches, churches that have become museums. We don't recognize those on our maps. In an atheist, communist state, living churches didn't make the map, and their occupants were considered as non-persons. And yet, this church was alive, wasn't it? This church was very much alive, where God was at work. It didn't make the man-made map of power and influence, but that's where God was showing up. If God was alive and at work anywhere in that city, it was in that place, bringing life. So, how do we respond to this truth? How do we respond? First, I want to say... Christ's geography is not our natural view of geography. It's good for us to recognize that. We are, by nature, it's part of our brokenness, we're enamored by power and influence, and we all too often overlook the meek and the lowly places and the meek and the lowly people. If we truly want to meet God and see him at work, we should probably be in a regular practice of laying down the privileges of our power and seeking the lowly places and the lowly people in our lives. Second, our power and our influence doesn't impress God. Sorry to break it to you. We often look at our influence and our achievements, even our accumulations, and we see them as God's blessing upon us, evidence that God has, has blessed us and that we're doing the right things. But that kind of theology flies in the face of much of the biblical narrative because God goes out of his way all the time to, to choose the meek and the lowly places and the people in which to do his work and to truly bless them. If anything, I think we who have so much power and so much influence, we have to work all the more to stay alive spiritually, to make sure that our lives don't become those dead buildings with no inhabitants that are just museums. I'm quite confident that when Christ comes again, he will not ask us, how much power did you accumulate in your life? I think instead he'll ask, what did you do with all that I gave you? Third, we would do well to admit our own weaknesses. It's a good practice. We live in a culture where weakness is often covered up. It's hidden at all costs. But did you hear the humility that was conveyed in that scripture reading up here? Elizabeth. Who am I that the mother of my Lord comes to me? Who am I? And then Mary, in her beautiful song, surely God has looked upon the lowliness of his servant. And the church in Philadelphia, how are they referred to? As having little strength, meek, weak, 
this is a good and positive posture for us to have as well. When's the last time that you said something like that? When's the last time that something came out of your mouth from that wonderfully humble place? When's the last time you said, who am I? I mean, really, who am I? I'm just a lowly servant. It's not about me. If you can't remember easily the last time you said that or felt that, and you truly want to understand God and see him at work in your life and in this world, then you need to work at admitting some of your weakness and then watch for God to show up. Lastly, if we can embrace the fact that God is uniquely alive in weakness and even in our weakness, then we might see the open doors and the cosmic hope that God has before us. Jesus did not come so long ago merely to change our present, but to orient us towards a future that he has for us. That he has for us. For those of us who, though we have little earthly strength, like Mary, like the Philadelphian church, will hold fast to Jesus. He opens that gateway to living before us that is glorious and it leads us to an eternal life with him. So I asked that question earlier. What are we influencing? What are we influencing? I don't want you to feel this morning, I don't want you to feel bad about the power and influence that you have. That's not the point of this this morning. I don't want you to shun it. I don't want you to grieve it. What I'm asking you to do is the most Christ-like thing that you might ever do and you could possibly do, which is this. Lay aside your power and influence all day, every day, for weaker things and weaker people. Those things and those people who cannot advance your power or your checkbook or your networking or your social cachet in any way. I'm asking you to work hard to resist the priorities of our modern maps and instead ask God to be the great cartographer of our lives and our hearts and to fix our eyes on the places that he is already at work in the heavenly hope to which he calls us. The maps of our lives need to reflect that hope, especially because God has put us in positions of power and influence. I see the power and the influence that we have as a gift in as much as we're willing to lay it down and seek the lowly and the meek and there find a faith that is fully alive both already and in our own hearts. So I invite you to follow Christ's lead. Just as he came in weakness to give so much for us, let's not run from our weakness, but let's hope within it. Let's not build museums to ourselves, but let's lay down our influence, centering the map of our lives on something beyond the power and wisdom of this world, and fix our eyes on Christ, who blesses the weak places and blesses weak people, shows up in their midst and offers us hope for a time when we might see the world in the way that he sees it. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you come to weak places and you visit weak people. For those who are here who feel little strength this day, who experience weakness in our souls and in our lives, I pray that you would comfort them with the biblical truth that you indeed come, that they ought to hold fast to their faith and you've opened a gateway before them. And for those of us who recognize our power and influence this day in the world that you've given to us, would you 
spare us from callous lives and calloused hearts and instead orient our geography towards your geography. You would teach us to lay down that power and influence as a way of responding to that gift so that we might see you in lowly places, in lowly people. Would you give us the blessing of weakness so that we might lean further into you? And Lord, in our weakness, we fix our eyes on your heavenly hope. And we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Just as you came so many years ago to give hope to the world, we look forward to your coming again. And we hope in our weakness, in the weak places in this world.